O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about in mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it's also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stands far off. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Those are the first 11 verses and the last two verses of Psalm 38, which are the psalm, is the psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, December the 7th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at the prophecy of Amos, which, remember, is to the, given to the late, um, in the late times of the northern kingdom of Israel. So after the division, after the death of Solomon, Amos is a prophet from the south who goes up to the north to give the Lord's word because th- there were no prophets left in the north. They had all been corrupted by this time. And so we're going to be in Amos 8, 1 to 14, and then over in the book of the Revelation, chapter 1, verse 17, through chapter 2, verse 7, which includes the first letter to the churches in, in Asia, which is to the church in Ephesus, as well as the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 23, the first 12 verses there. So let's go back to uh, Amos. And so Amos is shown a basket of summer fruit, and and he says, Amos, the Lord says, what do you see? And he said, I see a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I'll never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they're thrown everywhere. Silence. I mean, what a horrible, horrible word to hear this must be, even for Amos, because Amos doesn't seem like a guy who goes, who decides to go to Israel and, and give them this horrible prophecy of God's judgment against them. I, I, the, the prophet's character, as I've said many times before, is not to go in wrath against people. His character is to represent God's holiness to the people and God's anger to the people in order that <laughs> the people turn. Right? That, that was Jonah's mistake. Jonah didn't want him to turn, and they did. The, a, a prophet, a true prophet of God, who is sent to a people with a message, should be hoping that the people hear that message and take action accordingly. And because they should, their hearts should be broken for the people to whom they prophesy. And that was the problem with Jonah, but I believe it's a problem that God resolved. And the reason I believe that is because Jonah's tomb was up in Mosul, which would have been in Nineveh, up in the land to whom he prophesied and the people whom he hated. He ended up dying there and being buried there. And I believe Jonah's the one who wrote that book, because I believe he's the only one who could have written it the way that he did. And so his heart had to be broken for the people, and I don't believe that's true of Amos. I believe that Amos went there because God put a burning message in his heart and sent him there 
to give this message with the hope that they would return to the Lord. He says, hear this, and this is the, the, this, this is the Lord's um, judgment declaration. This is why they're being judged. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. Says, I told you before, this was a time of great prosperity in the northern kingdom, and yet everybody didn't join in that prosperity. We're in a time and a season right now in the world, and particularly in America, where over the last two years we've seen the greatest transference of wealth from poor people to wealthy people that's ever been seen in the history of mankind in such a short period of time. The rich have gotten like exponentially richer, while everybody else has come down at some level in in the world. I mean, the, some of the most wealthy people on this earth have gotten incredibly richer during this pandemic, in spite of the fact that it's crushed so many other people, so many small businesses. And so that's exactly the situation Amos is speaking into, where nobody cares about the poor, but the rich just keep getting richer. And so they they bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great. So we're going to small measures and great money. So we're going to make sure that we make more money all the time, and we can't wait for these festivals that God provided for us to be done with, or the Sabbaths to be done with, because there's money to be made. And that's the whole point of what Amos' word is here. <clears throat> that we may um, make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. So false weights and measures are a significant thing for the Lord because everything ethical relies on that very thing. When you're buying and selling things by weight, then those measures need to be right. You don't need to have somebody's finger on the scale. And that's what he's saying that, that they were doing here. That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. We'll sell the junk. But we can we can buy and sell people. I, I had a guy one time that was a partner in a firm, accounting firm that I was in. We set up a separate business together, not because I wanted to, but because I was the person best suited to do it. And so I, I set this up, but he was my partner in this thing, whether I wanted him to be my partner or not, because it was his client for whom we set up this business. It was a servicing company. And so we, I had a part-time person doing something for me that I'd gotten through an agency, and he came to me and he said, hey, we need to, to convert that person over. You need, you need to hire them. I said, well, I only need somebody, you know, kind of part-time temporarily. And, and so he worked out a deal where we could hire them permanently, and the reason he wanted to do it was he said, if you, if you pay somebody the way you're doing it through this, then you just have an employee. But if, if, you, if you hire somebody, you own them. And that's the way he treated people. And, and that's exactly the point that, that we see here in Amos's prophecy, and he continues on with, The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed and about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, declares the Lord God, I'll make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I'll turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I'll make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. I mean, it's going to be horrible. Uh, There is just absolutely everything is going to be topsy-turvy is what he's saying here in this. And, And I'm going to come against you and I'm going to come against you hammer and tong. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
So it, you're, you're not going to hear anything. You're not going to hear the word of the Lord at all. And you can see that sometimes in some places, man, it is just awful to think the Lord wouldn't continue to speak to his people, and particularly in this situation. But he says, you're not going to hear anything. You'll wander from sea to sea and north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. I mean, this, this judgment is going to be complete and it's going to be final. And it was. That kingdom disappeared. They were taken into the nations, and they absolutely disappeared over time. You won't find anybody on this earth who will tell you, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm from the tribe of Dan. You can't possibly do that. There's no way to trace that stuff back any further. That Those lines are lost to history. They're not lost to the Lord, but they are lost to history. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has, has dealt with the Sadducees, in Monday's lessons, in the Pharisees, in Tuesday's lesson. Now, he looks to the crowds and his disciples. He's in the temple when this is going on. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. They are judging the nation. They've been given this role. They've been raised into these positions, and God's allowed them to be there. He says they're legitimate authorities at some level. They sit in Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. He's, it, basically, he's, he's saying they're not teaching falsely in the words that they say, but the reality is the things they do are the problem. Their actual lives are the problem. They're, they're, they're teaching reasonably faithfully. He said they preach, but they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They, they, they wouldn't even lift their little finger to help you with the burden that they put on your backs. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. That they, they like it. That they like the fact that they're recognized everywhere they go and that people bow to them and and. Uh, whisper as they walk past and and take note of them in everything that they do. I, I've certainly seen in the course of ministry um, guys who just like that. They do. They, they like to be recognized in that way. We had a, a guy in the church who um, I got him ordained, and then he, he decided that, that he was superior to me uh, in spite of the fact that the people in the congregation didn't respect him in the least. And he always insisted on being called Father, in spite of the fact that I never did. I never wanted anybody to call me Father because the passage that we're getting ready to take up. And, and it just felt weird to me. And, and I had a friend who gave him his comeuppance, which I'll tell you in a minute. He says, you're not to be called Rabbi, for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. In other words, there's a flat organizational chart. That organizational chart in the kingdom doesn't look like a, a rabbi who sits above and all this. No, you, you're going to have the Holy Spirit. And so you're going to—I can, I can impart wisdom and truth to you personally without the means of somebody else. There will be teachers and things like that, obviously. There were it's always intended to be teachers there. But, but what he's saying is, is the problem is, is that these guys lead you astray. And so you don't want to call people rabbi and put them in a position of, of authority and put them in, in a position of honor in such a way that, that they lose their way. 
because it's as dangerous for the person who's who's given that honor as it is for you who are giving them that honor. But the reality is, is that if as long as you keep exalting these people, they can lead you astray because you're not going to question them in the way you should. He says, call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you should be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The, so the, the guy that I'm talking about, um, he really had this, this odd sense of self that came about by virtue of being ordained. And he believed then that the rules that we had in the parish for leadership positions in the parish no longer applied to him because he was ordained. So he didn't have to do the things we asked of lay leaders in order to serve and to be at the leadership table. He didn't believe that he ought to have to give anything to the support of the church. He didn't believe he ought to have to be involved in the things that everybody else had to be involved in if they were going to have a position at the table when we sat down and talked about the future of the parish and the things that we should do. And I told him, you're just seriously mistaken there. And and no, you can't be in these meetings and at that table because of your failure as a disciple, which is much more basic than being um, ordained. That No, your life has to match, and that was my whole point, which is what Jesus is saying here. So anyway, one day he said to a friend of mine, my friend, friend of mine called him brother, whatever his first name was, I'm not going to say it, but he turned and said, no, 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 I'm father, such and such. She, she said, no, you're not. No, you are not. You're, you're a brother, and that's it, period, in a sentence, and I'm sister. And, he, and she was exactly right, but his insistence on being called that was really the, the, uh, the problem. He says, you're, Jesus says, you're all brothers. I mean, he, he flattens that whole thing and says, this is the way we're supposed to relate to one another. And the problem becomes then we can put other people in the position of Jesus. We can put them uh, in, in a place where they are the only ones who can get the words from the Lord. And, and we're no longer taken seriously the priesthood of all believers. Um, doesn't mean we don't have places as teachers and preachers and all that kind of stuff. But, but what it does mean is, is that it doesn't make me special or better. It just makes me different. Well, we all know that I'm different. So anyway, in the uh, Revelation passage, John sees this one standing among the seven lampstands, this one looking like a son of a man, and he says, I saw him, and I felt his feet as though dead. In other words, I I didn't even think I could live after seeing him. It It was so much. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So write everything you've seen, write everything you're going to see. I'm, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. There's only one who qualifies to be that. It has to be Jesus. And because of that, he's been given the keys of death and Hades. In other words, that, that he has final say on who stays in, in hell or who ends up with eternal life with the Lord. He says, uh, as for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the churches. Because the understanding would be that there'd be an angel for each church, because there would be angels over places. That's a long thing to, to describe. But, but the way that, that the ancient world understood gods frequently was there would be a god of a place. And so what Scripture will kind of say is is that, yes, there are principalities and powers over places, and what Jesus says here is there are angels who have oversight over the church in that place. 
And so those are the seven angels that he speaks of, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. In other words, bravo for you. You haven't been led astray. You've dedicated yourself and devoted yourself to truth, and you have exercised discernment over that truth. And and those who have, you've tested and found not to be apostles, you've put them away. You won't have anything to do with them, and that's wonderful. And I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you've not grown weary. I mean, all these are things that the Lord is encouraging them with. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And it's a danger whenever we become a people who have have discernment and who've had to deal with false prophets and false apostles and a false teaching in our lives, as we did when we left and, and formed the denomination that we did, it's, it's difficult when you come out of that to love because you've been burned, you've been lied to, you've been whatever. Well, the problem becomes then that, that you're so truth-oriented and justice-oriented that you lose track of mercy and grace. And that can be a real problem. I mean, certainly it would describe an awful lot of churches, but the opposite would also describe a lot of churches, that they know so much of mercy and grace that justice no longer matters, truth no longer matters. He said, you all have become so dedicated to truth that you've forgotten love. This is what it's all based in is love. Go back, he says, to that. Remember where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And then ultimately, he says, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I'll give you a quick primer on who we believe those people are. Nicholas of Antioch, who was one of the, uh, the first deacons, actually, had been a proselyte to, to Judaism. And so he had already left his pagan religion and become a Jew, and then he became a Christian as well. Well, the, the early church fathers write about this Nicholas of Antioch and that, that Nicholas lost the thread. He, he basically became a syncretist. He took his old beliefs and merged them with a new one, said life itself really didn't matter all that much. You, should, you can go ahead and compromise and live like a pagan because your soul doesn't participate in that. There's a Gnosticism in that, a wisdom and a knowledge that comes from outside that, that denies the body has any salvific value to it, that it's not going to be saved anyway. It's so corrupt that, that it could be thrown away, but you can do anything you like with it in the meantime. It's the faith that you have is all that ultimately matters, and it's a lie. And so what happened was they kind of returned to Baal worship, and Baal worship is um, typically— well, sexual in nature. And so lasciviousness and promiscuity and adultery and fornication and all those things come along with that. And so what, what the Nicolaitans were saying was that none of that actually matters as far as the church is concerned. Well, the, the Acts Council, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, actually said that it does. It said to stay away from sexual immorality and from food sacrifice to idols, and 
meat with the blood still in it. So the sexual immorality was one of the things that the church always held up as, as something that should be stayed away from. And so here he says, I, I appreciate this, you do hate that. And I hate that too. And then ends up with, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. And again, where is this judgment in Revelation beginning? Well, it begins in these seven churches. It doesn't begin in the world. It begins in the churches, because the churches have failed to proclaim the glory of God in one way or another, and in some cases, more than one way. But here, it's because they've lost love. They've been so dedicated and committed to truth that they don't have love anymore. They've forgotten that ultimately this was about God's love for the world and God's love for them. And they're so convicted by truth that they no longer have room for love.